0: The beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious
1: substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis,
0: also known as Dune. are about to enter a world where the unexpected many dangers exist on arrakis the unknown an incredible secret have been kept on this planet and the unbelievable meat i see two great houses few, where kingdoms are built on earth that moves we have worms sign the likes of which even god has never seen and skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe can bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior Why? is called upon to free his people. No. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure.
2: He who controls the spice controls the universe. And
0: greatest terrors. A world where the mighty... This is genocide. The deliberate and systematic destruction of all life on Arrakis. The mad. Ah! <laughs> I will kill him! I will love you forever. And the Magical... Father, the sleeper has awakened! ...will have their final battle. Lord,
2: show the slightest. Pity
0: or mercy? Emperor, we come for you! Doom, a spectacular journey through the wonders of space and the mysteries of time. From the boundaries of the incredible to the borders of the impossible. Now, Frank Herbert's widely read. Talked about and cherished masterpiece comes to the screen. Dino Laurentiis presents Dune, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination.
3: Well, I'm not a crook. I burn everything I've got. Military industrial under.
4: Other I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to It's the whole world the to to
1: If you walk without rhythm, then you won't attract the worm. Welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century. I'm Hank Oslo. We've got everybody tonight. I'll give you one guess as to what we're talking about, but you wouldn't have to guess if you were prescient. It's yes, Dune. By
4: popular request, we are broadcasting today from the desert planet of Arrakis.
3: Arrakis. You know, the first Arrakis. time I heard that quote that Hank just said... Uh, was actually on I think a fat boy slim record.
1: Yeah, and I don't think it and actually appears in Dune. I think that's purely It, it is in the movie.
3: Um, they do say that when they're lost in uh, in the desert that the guy, the main character and his mom I think that's what he says to her.
1: Yeah, that and the, uh, the lips create the stain or the, uh, the juice creates the stain, the stain creates the et cetera, thing for the Mentats. That's also a David Lynch joint.
3: Yeah. So I watched the movie just for the record and prep for this. And oh, also for choice. the record, I read this as a kid, I think about halfway. And then I tried again with the audiobook and I got about a quarter of the way. It's not it's not bad. It's just it's very complicated um and seeing the movie actually made it make a lot more sense.
1: I've read well, everything that Frank Herbert wrote. Uh including the lesser advised uh works. But uh yeah, Dune was a very very formative book, I guess, for me as a youngster.
4: I can say the same but in the spirit of that, uh, why don't you tell me about the waters of your home world, Hank?
1: <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by that, Nick?
4: Uh, where do you want to jump in here? I mean, it's a... Uh, the Dune... So, uh, for my part, I can say I, I think it's a fantastic Aryan novel. I, I think that Hank and I have a different opinion as to the rest of the trilogy. or Well, fuck, how many books was it? Yeah, it's like Quintilogy, oh. if you start including what his
1: son wrote... Oh nice. no! Don't do that. Brian Herbert well, does not exist. He's a figment of your imagination. He well, can't hurt you. A lot of it's He's a, not a lot real. Of my imagination
4: because my my attitude actually is uh, full disclosure. I dropped off after Children of Dune. I dislike uh, a lot in both Children of Dune and Dune Messiah, and my high praise is reserved exclusively for the first book. Uh, there's things I do like, but and I consider the first novel to be a near perfect novel yes uh, I, I don't have that attitude towards the rest of it well uh, okay it so enough, we can we can get into it different ways but no let's let's dune, let's
1: just jump in so like this whole thing is it. is going to be just have, such lack of context to that if you haven't read dune it just like i mean spoiler is going to be a plenty here so just turn off read dune come back but i mean we're, we're going to assume sort of a passing familiarity with the uh with the work here. But, I mean, so I I look at...
4: Spoiler alert. Yeah.
1: I look at Dune and the... uh, Well, so there's, there's three parts that really, I think you should divide the whole thing into. There's Dune itself, Messiah, Children, God, Emperor, and then Heretics and Chapter House. Heretics and Chapter House, I just... They're not great because they were building up to... Something that was never quite elucidated because the guy died. Uh, thematically, I think that they're sort of uh, discardable. Like, I don't think that they say anything new that's not captured by Herbert's other body of work. What I find interesting about uh, the Dune versus the Messiah's Children and uh, God Emperor uh, trilogy is that Dune is a very complicated uh, book that is sort of um, melding together all of these ideas that Herbert uh, came across. Uh, It wasn't his first novel, but it was his first like major and first major successful novel. And it melds together all these things that appear as themes throughout the rest of his work. Uh, And as a result, um, there's not sort of a... And it's not a failing to say that there's not like oh there's one coherent thing. That's its strength. That it has like a diversity of ideas, and it uh, it sort of plays around with them in interesting ways. What I find interesting about Messiah Children and God Emperor is because it's going off of a very specific track of like, okay so you have all these ideas about um sort of deep ecology and uh human governance human frailties in uh response to kind of knowledge of uh foreshadowing this this idea of like genetic memory how does that actually play out for the kind of uh future of humanity so that I think is a more like specific exploration of a subset of the ideas in Dune where it sort of uh, gets rid of some of the, uh, the hero's journey, the like uh, kind of classically uh, plotty stuff and are much more like novels of ideas, especially God Emperor, where like a large portion of the book is just uh, monologues or dialogues between the, uh, this uh, the titular god emperor who's becoming a sandworm and uh, his various uh, reanimated uh, corpses of his uh, f- former compatriots that he's sort of trying to explain what his, uh, his plan is for humanity. So I think they're, they're both enjoyable and you shouldn't go into uh, that trilogy with the idea that it's just going to be like, wow, cool, like Dune sequels. They're, they're trying to do different things
4: yeah i uh the reason i dropped off i think the first one stands alone in a very pure way because it it hits on really all of the most interesting ideas I, i do think it's a masterpiece i mean you have basically the idea of the superman you have uh myth power order uh you have an adaptation of various forms of mythology and religion. You have to see mm-hmm. things like Rudyard Kipling's "The Man Who Would Be King." There's all kinds of very powerful, you know, deep. As Hank mentioned, deep ecology, galactic eugenics, uh, genocide, and
1: literal I mean, myth of the blood.
4: It's the literal myth of the blood. I mean, in the book it's uh, race consciousness, and
1: in, in like a super literal way, like. There, oh, yeah. There is this like it's not even like an idea like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it's like explicitly within the book there is like if you take enough space acid, then you can literally talk to your ancestors and they will give you advice and you're bound by the myth of the blood to continue uh, whatever sort of path of destiny is laid down uh, in your genetic bloodlines. Yeah.
4: Because, because there is no escape. We pay for the violence of our ancestors. I mean, it's an eminently quotable book and it's one of the few, as much as I love like Tolkien and a lot of the early 20th century sort of fantasy stuff is, I think really the most of all the, of all the 20th century material, while it is derivative in the sense that it, it just, it takes from so much, it takes from real history, from myth, uh, it really stands alone to me as a really unique vision of the future. And when you compare it to a lot of other science fiction, they managed to just take like one of the most impressive things about Dune and considering also when it was written is that it just starts by throwing out all of the other bullshit of science fiction, like all the other, like all the Asimov stuff, all of it, it's just gone because it leaps over the whole idea of man's relationship to the machine And, you know, you could describe it maybe, I guess, as a archaeo-futuristic or whatever, like what it is, is a return of pseudo-medieval relations, uh, you know, hierarchy and nobility by the blood, limited warfare, these kinds of principles. It takes the ideas that were popular in science fiction regarding the machine, the robot, Uh, all that stuff and just throws it the fuck out and is like nah we tried that shit and it was a fucking bad idea and now we have absolute prohibitions against it and we can proceed with what is you know and identify something that like the the eugenic aspect of it is really probably the most interesting in that it doesn't proceed with the type of uh, lib, for lack of a better term, lib, libtard moralism that you would expect. Namely, it, it recognizes that the machine was actually a hindrance to the real project of advancement, advancement in a meaningful way, namely the latent potentialities of the human mind. And so Dune takes place in a universe where galactic eugenics has been practiced for you know X number of years, And the real struggle of it is who controls the most powerful thing in the universe, and it's actually not the spice, uh, which is sort of there's a lot of mirror themes to it, but it's not the spice itself. And one of the famous quotes from Dune is, "Who has the power to destroy a thing is the one who controls the thing." The most powerful thing in the universe is the blood, the ability to control the breeding, and to perfect the Superman, or in the context of a novel, the Cuisat Saderac, which is the coming of the Superman,
1: the Messiah, and
4: in the Messiah, which also is then tied in with myth and myth as it relates to reality and myth as it relates to fantasy. Namely, it's something, it was a tactically seeded mythology in, I guess, presumably all of the different scattered peoples of the cosmos. Uh, it was the, the coming of the Messiah and the drama in Dune. And you ha- you kind of have to, you, you have to pay some attention because it's not spelled out. I will get into the film too, because I, I actually think Lynch did a fantastic job. Uh, but let's save that discussion for later. And the, the focus of it is who controls this. And you have various sort of occult powers. You have, uh, and they're divided along masculine and feminine lines. Uh, you have the, the Bene Gesserit sisterhood, which is the, the feminine force that controls the breeding pool. And they expect to be able to control in collaboration with the cosmic money power uh, the future of the known cosmos. And the problem that comes up is that a masculine force is able to come outside of the planned breeding project, but does in fact represent the Superman. And you can't really talk about it without talking about Nietzsche. I mean, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, but the uh, the test of the, the, the Ganjabar is a, it's explicitly Nietzschean. And you have, obviously, if you've made it this far in the program, I hope you have probably read or the book or seen the movie at least. So obviously you're familiar of, to what's in the box. What is in the box? Well, pain. pain in the box. Yes. And the dilemma, and I actually find myself, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like I actually do end up quoting this a lot and explaining to people something. And that's the simple principle, and it's elucidated very well. And it's the relationship between man and the animal. And human is used in a very particular way in Dune. And it's used in a very Nietzschean sense. And namely that life in of itself does not have some sort of innate value. Human is distinguished by the latent potentialities of race consciousness.
1: Right. And that latent potentiality so there's this whole theme of social control and who's doing the controlling and for what end that goes through the entire uh uh series but it gets more explicit in the secondary uh trilogy where i assume that like the drop-off uh from like listeners who have read dune which you know given the given the listener base i'm just gonna say like Two-thirds plus, and then that probably drops off to like, I don't know, by a factor of ten once you start getting into like Messiah, Children, God Emperor. But the sort of overarching plot of those three is that you have the uh heirs, I guess, the heir of uh Paul Atreides, uh, particularly the God Emperor, uh his uh his son, I believe, uh trying to essentially remake humanity into a survivable uh species. So the implication by God Emperor is that basically uh all technological progress and also all social progress has been sort of ruthlessly suppressed. And humanity has been led into a form of stasis in order to sort of uh, cultivate its internal qualities uh, so that it can uh, address some unclear external threat that I think was vague enough uh, that probably Herbert didn't really have any idea um, what it was until he started on the final unfinished uh, trilogy uh, within that corpus. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of interesting because like you said, Nick, that's in direct contrast to the idea of, wow, there's this, some, there's some gigantic external threat. We need like the biggest guns. We need the, the biggest government. We need to be, uh, the fastest ships, etc uh, et cetera. We've got to really put our heads together and figure out how we're going to hack the evil, uh, the evil space laser independence day uh ship send in Go- Jeff Goldblum with our finest MacBook to uh really blow this bitch up. That's not that's not what happens. It's it's a an attempt to actually uh sort of re engineer the foundations of society to like create different kinds of people in kind of a a weird a weird way that it that causes like you know, this, this sort of like a successor race almost to, uh, to emerge.
4: This is my problem with the subsequent novels, namely that by the conclusion of, of Dune, uh, you have all the makings of a thousand year Reich. And it, it, I guess for the sake of continuing and on and having drama and stuff, you proceed directly after the events of the first book. But the problem is that like, it came to perfection at the end like that was exactly how it should have worked out and he had come to terms with the necessity of course of galactic genocide which is a major theme terrible purpose and he had come to terms with it and he enters into this like pseudo i i don't want to get too much on the negative because as i i just absolutely loved the first book and I don't want to dwell on what I don't like about the subsequent novels. Well, no, I think
1: I think like but, what you dislike might be exactly why I like, so there's some interesting it, clash there.
4: Well, yeah, I, I just think that if the you want to show what could go wrong after this, I think that a, a better timescale would have been appropriate rather than while uh, Paul was still alive that he came to some kind of weird pseudo- Christ figure like and it's an irony too because Nietzsche himself described the Superman as a uh, one of the descriptions if I remember correctly it was something to the effect of the Roman Caesar with the soul of Christ and he basically renounces his godhood he renounces what made what the role that because the the internal drama of Dune is that he's having to come to terms with becoming something yeah it's all it's a novel of becoming and he doesn't necessarily Want to become what it is he must become, but he eventually comes to accept the necessity of
1: right. It. So, so this is the that sort of casting off of the mantle is the uh, is the plot of uh, Dune Messiah, and it's sort of the implication that like he had like a sort of cosmic horror at the idea of the necessity of basically crushing humanity for 10,000 years or whatever. So that they would uh, basically that like latent, uh, potential would reify in like destroying the God emperor and being able to face this external threat that like, I mean, effectively he did end up creating a you know, 10,000 year, uh, human empire, uh, it's just that it's sort of the, uh, the progress of that thing, like the idea that it's not static and that's not sufficient. And then to go to the next thing and not have just a like, Oh, that cool empire lasted for a pretty long time. Anyway, they got like raped by machine God or whatever. And now they're dead. Instead of that, you need some sort of a notion of, uh, perpetuity and then like the, necess- the necessary steps to have that process of uh, overcoming not just on a personal level where you're trying to like how do we make a messiah how do you manufacture a superman but how do you do that on a species level like how do you create not just like a race of supermen um but a Uh, a sort of truly resilient uh, society and like what amount of destruction would that entail that's uh, that comes into play a lot more uh, in God Emperor Um, yeah Dune Messiah is it's okay it's very short which is you know an advantage and it moves the plot along but I think these things really only come to fruition later
4: I have found one of my quotes so greatness is a transitory experience. It is never persistent. It depends in part upon the myth-making imagination of humankind. The person who experiences greatness must have a feeling for the myth he is in. He must reflect what is projected upon him. And he must have a strong sense of the sardonic This is what uncouples him from the belief in his own pretensions. The Sardonic is all that permits him to move within himself. Without this quality, even occasional greatness will destroy a man. I see what... And I would like to move along from... Because I can only discuss so much about what comes later. But uh, my ultimate criticism is I view what comes next as a regression from what was accomplished in the first novel. But... Uh, If we may, I'd like to focus a bit on the first novel, considering, you know, like I said, I I never read God Emperor. Uh, I stopped. I I tapped out Children of Dune. But I'd like to talk a bit about the influences, or at least what I see as influences, not having uh, read anything by Herbert that says as much. But I see a lot of Hamlet in it, and I see a, a lot of the man who would be king, as I mentioned earlier. But Hamlet in particular, what I always thought was interesting about Hamlet, I, I, I know some people might have a not agree with the take, but my interpretation of Hamlet personally was always it was a, a story about a man who knows he's in a story. Uh, or at least in other words, uh, he's aware of the sort of, I guess, meta perspective on the events that are taking place and he knows that he's basically an actor playing out a role. Uh, and it's a, in the context of dune it's about being a prisoner of prescience or a prisoner of the ability to see these events play out and having to make i guess the moral choice as to whether or not you're going to participate in it and in his case he chose to do it and it's an expression of will his will to power not for his own sake but for the purpose of the race and that's the whole dilemma that's presented with the in the beginning uh, with the Benny Gesserit and the ganjabar which is uh, as everyone's familiar the idea is that you know a man different than an animal an animal will chew his own leg off to be free of a trap whereas a man will submit to it and by the way that's another one it's he he who submits uh, rules but a man on the other hand is willing to see it through to the end and the circumstances were not of his control but he understands that he's a part of something that is much larger than himself and he'll play his part in it. And so to be an emperor, you know, it's the the prisoner of the circumstances and that power itself is not something that he craved for its own sake, but it was a necessary thing to set right. what had been wrong because the great enemy, for example, and this we can even bring in the David Lynch film, which uh, by the way, I thought was always really funny that the fags really hated it. Like, it's been called like one of the most anti-fag films ever. <laughs> yeah. That's like, I the, do it, yeah.
1: Um, that's like the one character it, that doesn't really have any nuance. I don't know. People might disagree. I, I think
4: he has nuance. I, I do disagree. He has nuance because he's not just a worthless degenerate pervert. Uh, he is that, but he's also very intelligent and he, he has, and no, I mean, that's shit fair. That, that much comes up later. Talking about Duke, the Baron Harkonnen. He's, uh, because he was an error in the bloodline, he was somebody who uh, was had perhaps the potential to become great, but was something went wrong, right? He's a, becomes a perversion of it. Uh, so he's he's very intelligent, very capable, but he's uh, degenerate to the core. I mean, he rapes little boys, and this is all the kind. And like Lynch decided to focus on this in a way that uh, I think upset people because uh, they didn't want to see it, but that was the reality. I mean. I don't want to do the whole, like, is it a right wing novel? Cause I don't really like to, to do the whole right wing thing to begin with. But like the short answer to that is yes, of course it absolutely is. It's it's not a left
2: reactionary, it's a reactionary (laughs) novel for sure.
4: Yeah. There's no getting around it. I mean, it, it's about restoring correct masculine hierarchy over this sort of, uh, scheming, uh, feminine, occult order, that is conspiring with like the nerds, the like deformed cosmic. That was the other thing like that they gave Lynch shit about was showing the navigators, uh, in the beginning. And even he opens with that. I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant personally. I, I think that movie is absolutely excellent. I think the only thing it really suffers from is the technology of the time. Uh, Lynch had never really made an Epic before and, uh, never since. And he didn't really have, the ability to do things like the worms very well. And obviously the, the shield, the, the weight as the, uh, the body shields is it, you know, it, it doesn't really hold that part doesn't hold up well, but Thematic? so much of it
3: does. I, so, I, I enjoy that stuff that those, that old schools effect. I mean, you, you don't see that anymore and, uh, you know, it's not real, but for some reason it looks more real to me than the computer stuff. Uh, well, and that's maybe that's, stuff. Yeah, apropos for this film. It was just well, bad computer stuff.
2: I think that if we're talking about some of the, the inspirations or maybe where you know, you can look for how Herbert sort of constructed the world of Dune, uh, there was a book, a kind of mid-century book written by an author called Leslie Blanche. Uh, the book was called The Sabers of Paradise. And The Sabers of Paradise is uh, effectively a novel about the tribal conflicts of the 19th century Caucasian mountain range, or the Caucasus. Both the tribes within them, their you know, their, tri- their trials between religions, their trials between themselves and the Russian Empire and their way of life and so forth. And there's actually quite a bit of Central Asian and, and, and Caucasian, uh, influences throughout the novel, at least the first one. I've only ever read the first one. And there's definitely influences of uh, the Cossacks and, and so forth. There's a, there's a particular uh, weapon that is, I think, used by all sort of the, the high-level high people, the high caste people, the Kinjal, if I remember correctly. Well, a kinjal is a Caucasian hunting knife. And there's even a, a direct linguistic inspiration in that uh, the language that is preferred as sort of the, the galactic uh, sort of standard of speech, uh, Chakapsa, I think, or Ch- Chakapsa, um, that is a literal Caucasian hunting language. I mean, Herbert kind of borrowed that directly. And the, the basic idea is that this is a language that only the privileged members really of society in the Caucasus would utilize because only the most privileged would really be able to go out and hunt and you could converse across tribes with other high-minded individuals in this sort of universal language just strictly for hunting. And there's lots of inspirations definitely in terms of like what you were saying earlier about the blood component and something that's very incredibly important in the Caucasus and Central Asia today are these very fine-tuned relationships people have to their ethnicity. And you have even small clans that are effectively their own microethnicity within a larger ethnicity, which might be part of a larger tribe or larger country. And you have, you know, deep levels of ethnic identity and really blood-based identity that then kind of Mixes in with the religious identity very slowly, and, and a class identity on top of that. So the reality is that you know you have these you have these very very layered and detailed societies that are at their core are really about their blood relations to one another, and the kind of power that that affords them. You can even see that today in the caucuses. You can see you know um, ostensibly you have a realm of control. And ostensibly, all the the power brokers within that realm of control aren't really, uh, you know, fighting each other. There's no real major disagreements. But the more and more you drill down on it, the ethnic complexities are so deep in that there's actually ethnic groups even to this day at this moment that are technically at war with each other. And these some of these ethnic groups, very very isolated tribes, are maybe only a few thousand or a couple ten thousand, and they're part of a certain clan. Um, but there is a level of, of I think, real importance people have for that ethnicity, and that's a big part of Dune, is who exactly are you, where do you come from, and how you relate to those around you who are of a lesser blood, and how do you kind of move through life knowing that you are of a higher blood, and what does that what, what privileges does that afford you? But what do you have to do? This is a lot of responsibilities. It's an extremely dangerous game. That uh, I think part of, part of Dune is that old kind of adage about monarchies or about uh, lordship and that monarchs and lords uh, definitely had a higher percent chance of dying than your average president or prime minister today in combat or assassination or poisoning or whatever. And in that same sense, the higher you rank in the, the you know, the, the universe of Dune, the higher your house, the higher your your blood within the house, um, the more likely you are to face severe consequences for that. So it's about what what comes with that level of power? What comes with that, that terrible blood.
4: terrible purpose. Terrible right. purpose. I mean, that's you talk about the knife. I I thought about the Chris knife, nobody's ever seen a Chris knife. But I mean, that was, uh, I mentioned this earlier, but it, it was the great achievement, I think, of Herbert was that all these other science fiction writers were worried about the machine or were thinking about, as far as 20th century developments, they were thinking about the machine. Only Herbert was the one who took the real 20th century development seriously, which is the rediscovery of eugenics and the idea that that's the, you talk about the perfectibility of man or the improvement of man, it doesn't come from the machine. That That actually ends up weakening man. It comes from, Um, selective breeding and the creation of
2: the beyond man but well i think that what herbert definitely noticed too um was you know in the post-war era the the relationship between breeding or between you know i suppose a soft or just passive eugenics is directly tied to the movement of resources Around the world, or in his case, around the universe. Yes, and so, the and the control of resources is really how you then sort of create this feedback loop between how you then can accelerate your own eugenic purposes, your and, own growth, which then allows you to take more resources. And this the the big part of the at least the first novel is the politics of of trade with uh, the, the chome choam organization and how this ultimately impacts the eugenic uh, acceleration of the various houses and the interplay therein so there's part of the part of the complexity and what's great about dune is that it, it is very reactionary in that it views politics as a a series of complex concentric three-dimensional objects all sort of interplaying with another and you have to sort of find a way to rise above that and view the system as a whole in order to achieve some major outcome for your people yourself whatever whatever you're going to choose to do and depending on who you are in the novel you know there's definitely people who choose themselves there's definitely people who choose their house there's definitely people who choose money there's definitely people who choose all have very very different choices depending on how far they go and um, ultimately you know, you're know, you kind of left with this impression that really this this con- these complex circles of power uh, are both in your control and out of your control at the same time so it is very Nietzschean but it is also uh, it's almost sort of a co- like an eg- maybe existentialist or something like that where You know, there's there's a broader, not existentialist, I suppose, but there's something else going on. It's hard to put it into words where there's you are able to both control it and you're both out of control constantly at the same time. And whatever way you lean at any any given moment kind of only temporarily determines the outcome of your fate. The whole I mean, this is this is why the the novels, I think, so fantastic, because it it allows you to think about what exactly is it to move through life? And what does that really mean to move through life? Well, are we,
3: are we assuming that this uh, eugenics system dare I call it is applicable throughout the entire universe. They, they limit. Yeah. The yeah. It's, 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 it's implied. It's, it's that,
4: assumed that, it's, that okay. you had multiple generations of, Controlled breeding that would bring about the what would be called the Cuisat and that similarly at work was the seeding of the mythos of the of the context uh, in order that when that super being came into the world, they would be received a certain way by the far flung reaches of the empire. And much uh, much of what Han says is is on point. I would say. Again, the the interesting part is the interrelationship between these types of themes, namely, uh, at this, I mean, you can't really talk about this without talking about something like Afghanistan, which, uh, not just in our time, but in the 19th century, was a, a pivotal place. I mean, the oil concern wasn't as real, but opium always was. And you have in the novel, the, the Fremen are, they're sort of, like, I've always thought of them, uh, and I can't help it, as you take sort of Arabs, but you make them Aryan and, you know, with blue within blue eyes. I mean, why is it, I mean, come on, Frank, why is it that the the center of the cosmos and the sort of barbarians and the outreaches of this, because that, that's the, again, the paradox, right? You have like the center of the cosmos, the place on which all things turn because the necess- necessary for uh, space travel for long distance space travel relies on this far-flung desert world so it's at once both the center and the most remote it, it it's the you know it it at both it's both things are true at once and the people who inhabit it you know what's up frank why why did the eyes turn blue you know it's
2: <laughs> I think I think that it's definitely it's definitely based on the people of the Caucasus. Like it's, yeah, there it's, are there are an enumerity of similarities. I mean there are very some very
1: literal direct similarities it's a, between not quite Caucasian. generic, but it's it's a syncretic like idea of. So there's a really good uh, uh, blog a a c o u p dot blog. He has a very good. Uh, everything there is fantastic to be honest um his whole
2: history of steel
1: by the way if anyone was interested in that steel the textiles iron, steel farming like great. it's it's all fantastic um there is a a good uh i guess sub series thing on the fremen mirage and like if you follow up with some of the empirical research like yeah it's true so like the idea of the the like based hardcore tribal opponents who are you know man for man stronger than whatever etc like dances with wolves like is the short
4: what's well, true of the indians too of yeah. the the american indian it's absolutely true man for man the red man was a far superior warrior well no that's the just the thing
1: man. like it's not true like tribal societies are like tribal societies in outlying marginal areas got driven there. It's not like the idea that, oh yeah, we live in the mountains because it's you know, it's super chill. Like we love it up here. It's like, no, you would much rather be on the fertile plain. At some point you got your ass handed to you. You've now somewhat adapted it to your environment in the same way that like a petri dish uh with like a little bit of penicillin will adapt to it. But you'd rather the penicillin was gone like the the Fremen like depiction of society um, like you can kind of take it as a just like okay well we're just going to assume that this is the case for the point of uh, the book and the plot and the themes involved but a lot of those themes are uh, you know this idea of the, uh, the purity or superiority of uh, tribal societies, exemplified by this clearly syncretic Uh, society of tribes, the Fremen, where they have these, you know, base traditions of mortal combat and, uh, you know, they're really good at fighting with knives and, oh, holy shit, there's a lot of them. Whoops, we forgot about that. Like it's some combination of, I think almost the Mongols might be uh, somewhat of of a also apt comparison, but it's melding together a lot of these ideas that are really more kind of popular depictions of uh, tribal societies in marginal outlying areas than the actual reality.
4: Well, even to this day, I mean, you talk about Afghanistan and you can draw the obvious parallels to both the opium trade and oil and its key relationship uh, geopolitically to the the opposing powers to the to Zog's empire. I mean, Shit, man! Like these guys who have been fighting for fucking forty, fifty years, seen far more combat and are more seasoned warriors than anybody that uh, America sends out there.
1: Like I mean, there's the idea enemies. of the warrior ethos, but that's not the same thing as being a effective fighting force. So, yeah, I, I think but that, that that's analogy maybe
4: in the novel, though. Is a little stretch.
1: Right. I mean, it's it's addressed, but it's a little bit hand wave. It's like, okay, well, turns out, like there were five orders of magnitude more of you guys than we thought there were for some reason.
4: Well, the way it's addressed is that the, uh, to, I guess to stretch the analogy and to compare it, uh, to bring back Kipling, it's the idea that the man who comes from the outside world, the greater empire, uh, and comes to become King of them. He has what exactly what it is that they're missing. They provide Would- a very suitable fighting force and the mastery of the terrain and the planet and uh, it's Paul who's able to come and deliver to and to use them as an instrument of warfare against against the
1: empire right but that's so that's a like that's the same dances with wolves idea like i don't i mean i'm not like some you know libtard prick who's like oh how dare you other the indians or whatever like i'm just using it as an example of the trope because even at the time, like you talk about Kipling, like even at the time it was a trope. Uh, the idea that you take like a tribal society that is devoted to like low casualty hit and run slash like sneak up on a tribal uh, village and massacre everybody while they're asleep. And suddenly we're going to morph them into like a force that can advance on a fixed position and take casualties It's like okay, again, like for the purposes of the plot, like you can do that. Like you can appreciate *Dances with Wolves*. You can appreciate *Dune*. I do appreciate both of those things. It's just that uh, there's a temptation to sort of like when you have a syncretic work like this, and it's like okay, well, he's he's grabbing all of these uh, all of these sometimes contradictory, like orange Catholic Bible is a funny. uh, it's like, well, the oranges. Yeah, deliberately so. yeah. yeah. The oranges would be like the Protestants and the Catholics right, exactly. would be the other one. Precisely. So it's like, yeah. So it's like the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew Quran or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like let's just jam it all in there. But then there's a temptation when you're reading it to be like, Oh, he's referring it to like these things. So these things, maybe they're like what uh, this sort of influence depiction is in the novel. And like, that's, that's just not true. Like, Arabs, no, like,
4: I, I don't, I don't, personal courage or I whatever
1: terrible fighters. They yeah, don't win that's wars. That's the point. That's
4: what I said. It's what it is, is he takes that myth and makes them instead basically pseudo Aryans. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's the point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, I will, it's I but you, you have to recognize, that. like, when he's doing, like, the myth and, like, the thing that's not true, as opposed to, yeah. like, yeah. you know, this says yeah. a lot yeah. about yeah. society.
2: I, I, think I think he does a, a good job, Herbert, of avoiding falling into the old, like, Rousseau, noble savage thing. I mean, the Fremen are not, and really broadly, I think pretty much everyone, uh, are not necessarily good or bad. The Fremen come out as sort of sympathetic, um, mostly because they... they are for the most part virtuous, but they're by no means, I think, presented as these sort of, I don't know, but both coterminously, both um, like samurai and hippie. That, that's the kind of uh, trope, right, where someone is both incredibly uh, peaceful and good, but is also incredible of, you know, a kind of insane violence. And the only people that are capable of insane violence are generally people with at least some bad in them. And I think that he does a decent job of relaying that uh, the House of, house of Paul is, is in some ways no different than the Fremen. They're both a mix of good and bad, and they're both sort of kind of advanced barbarians in one way or another. In the case of Paul, his house is advanced technologically. In the case of the Fremen, they're advanced in their knowledge of the planet, which sort of exceeds anything that the technology is capable of understanding at certain times.
4: Well, the other mirror. You're right that they mirror them, and not only is it Paul, but for example, the fremen uh, are very receptive of uh, of uh, Gurney Halleck too. They 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 view him as sort of um, a kindred spirit and somebody whom they respect. I mean, there's Captain Picard yeah yeah well cast by the way well cast in fact again like lynch is doing is just perfectly cast and which is uh i will say no more about this but this is why i won't be seeing the new film uh is because of the casting
1: yeah I, what's his name looks a little bit too pretty for the uh i'll, I'll reserve yeah, judgment i'm hoping for well, just they like la- some they good made visuals
4: Kynes, uh they made Liat Kynes uh a she boon. Um, uh, you know, they, you take Max von Scheidau and you make him, a she, it's just get the fuck out, dude. I mean, it, and the other thing they take, they make them actual Arabs uh, Lynch had the, he got it enough to make the Fremen like Aryans. Like he had, I mean, uh, Cheney was played by Sean Young. I mean, uh, uh, again, I'll, I'll say no more. I, I wanted to make a point about what Hans was saying. Um, <clears throat> namely, the mirror between House Atreides and the Fremen, it, the other one is the eugenic aspect. Uh, right. and, and namely that in a society that has become advanced, you have to actually exert some form of uh, deliberate control over breeding. Because because in the Fremen society, you don't
2: have scarcity. the weak people die, yeah, they
4: die exactly. bad. So yeah. both are yeah. eugenically conditioned. They're They're conditioned by... In the case of the Fremen, they're conditioned by the scarcity and nature of the desert. What's the line from it? It's um, uh, the city. The city produces polish. The desert produces wisdom. Uh, it's <clears throat> they're they're adapted. They they're adapted to live in the circumstances, and the pressures are very harsh. So only the most um, capable survive. But you see, up.
1: like not purely in the so this is also like the idea of cultivating a harsh environment in order to produce that outcome like either on a genetic or a uh, personal or a social level it pops up like over and over again uh in basically every one of uh, herbert's other books um, a lot of which are good uh, if you can find them uh in print the uh yeah they're they're all pretty much worth a read uh there's a, i can't believe that the uh, under pressure is a submarine novel uh, hasn't been adapted yet um it's practically scripted already but the this pops up like implicitly in this idea of the the prison planet planet uh salusa secundus, salusa
4: secundus.
1: Yeah. yes the the hated Sardukar. So yeah, it's like, okay,
4: Emperor's terror legions are produced.
1: right. So, so you know, I mean, the there's this commandos. idea of like we've we've got like Paul Watson's prison planets uh, and like <laughs> we we dump <laughs> we dump this refuse there and then like I guess they they live there and they have kids or whatever, presumably. And, like, the fact that this is just such a horrifying moonscape makes them into, into badass soldiers, which is a little bit, like, contentious. Like, I don't, I don't think that that's actually, you know, Australia aside, uh, we love our Australians. But uh, my guess is that if you sealed off, like, I don't know, Folsom Prison, it's the only prison I can think of right now uh, for like 10,000 years, like assuming that you had a female population as well, you wouldn't like, Holy shit. We've got like a race of super soldiers at the end who are really good at following orders and are like highly adapted to urban combat or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you can, this is kind of like a almost hand wavy thing in Herbert's work. Frankly, like the same thing happens. Yeah. Uh, he's got this uh, series like the whipping star, or uh, the the Dasadi uh, experiment is the one where it really comes into play. Where there's this like h- this horrible hell world, and there's like one habitable valley, and it's got super high population density. And somebody will stab your eyes out for another ten calories. And as a result, they're all super badasses. And we need this giant shield around the planet to shield us from their badassity. Because if they ever get out, they're just going to conquer the the galaxy because of how badass they are. And it's like, okay, well, I can think of really polluted, difficult to get out of areas in America. And I don't see any, like, super soldiers coming out of, like, really polluted neighborhoods in Bangladesh.
2: You don't see any super soldiers coming out of, like, Flint, Michigan. Yeah, like... (laughs) (laughs) Like well, th- what... <laughs> this
3: is kind of what I was trying to ask before, like how comprehensive is this eugenics plan? It, considering that the apparently the book uh, talks about the entire universe uh, it, it, it seems to conclude that there's some sort of uh, overseeing of how this works and well, it sounds like w- yeah. that yeah. there... Well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on So it sounds like, however that there is, at least in first book there's this focus on the the two houses the royal families but then they have this savage planet which where the fremen are where things are less ordered uh less uh less controlled and obviously these people are breeding amongst each other without that much supervision and there apparently are other planets where this is going on so what what com- what 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 Orders all this, or what doesn't order this? Oh, it well, really natural okay, so, selection, or is it more of a sort the, of a, a crystallized system that the, has a plan?
4: The breeding program. Uh, it, it, the context is that it exists presumably only for the noble houses. It's not like a, hmm. a breeding of all the masses. It's just uh, the control of breeding between the various, because the the noble houses are arbitrated between an organization called the Landsrot. And the Benny Jesuit Sisterhood are sort of the feminine, uh, evil
1: Catholic space nuns.
4: Yeah, evil (laughs) precisely. Like the evil Catholic space nuns um, are responsible for bang, trying to yeah, trying to. To breed between the houses and eventually establish the uh, to to breed the per- the breed the
1: Superman. Yeah. It's like each and house they want is possessed. to be possessed
4: the that... ones who are responsible for that. Like that's the key, like kind of hidden drama to the novel is that the Benny Gesserit Sisterhood want they want to be the in control of the Superman when he arrives. Yeah, that makes and sense. And the great mistake or their great failure was that they one of their own, uh, Paul's mother Jessica bred outside of the breeding program out of, uh, I guess you'd say love for, uh, for Duke Leto, and that produced the, uh, the superman, the Queen's on Sadrach, Paul Atreides, Muad'Dib, um, right? And because that happened outside of their control, that was their. I mean, that that was how they got burned because and it was divided. It it mentioned too earlier that um, they're basically part of this ancient occult order that was divided along masculine and feminine lines and that they represent, of course, the the feminine and that the mass. The other side of it was occupied with pure mathematics. uh, And that was the spacing guilt. You also, of course, have the mentats, which are. Not necessarily a product of breeding, just like those with the highest IQ. And they're they're kind of I guess similar to that as far as spacing guild, but the spacing guild that was one of the mysteries in the novel. And that again, that was one of the things that like maybe people had a problem with Lynch showing. Even though in Dune Messiah you do get a description of one of the navigators, and that's actually what he used for showing the uh the first scene in the movie actually. But uh they're divided along those lines and it's sort of this specialized um, biopower, I guess you'd say, in the sense that it was, you know, because you're, you're, the Mentats exist for the reason that you can't have machines doing this, so you need people who are optimized, uh, specialized in the ability to make computations and
3: stuff. And D- Does Herbert ever address the very obvious, I think, and Ted Gaczynski has pointed this out also, uh, point that if you have this uh, galactic, or not even galactic, a universal ban on certain technology, how do you enforce that? likeness of a man. Oh, hold on, please. Uh, uh, so how do you enforce the outsider using that very advantageous technology and outcompete you? How do you uh, stop that?
1: So there's there's some notions of, like, uh, obviously influenced by the notion of mutually assured destruction. There's this plot point that uh, all of the houses uh, have their, uh, you know, massive pile of nukes, uh, you know, being sort of frenemies of each other. There's a general prohibition on their use, of course. But if somebody steps to, like, you're just going to nuke them. Uh, with the implication that like earth got the shit nuked out of it, uh, at some point, uh, that earth might actually be Seleuza Secondus. Uh, I, I vaguely remember this, but well, that's another, the
4: technological parody is a thing where like when it comes to weaponry, because they use, uh, swords, for example. And the reason that they use swords is because of a, of a parody that exists with like, they have like laser guns, right? But then they also have these shields. And if you, you you can't basically you can't shoot shields with the laser guns, or else you get a big boom boom.
1: Yeah, I mean the idea of like what stops somebody from doing it in secret is like okay, well that would have to be another subplot, and then the things like already got like a bajillion subplots, so just consider that as flavor.
4: But is it really superior though? I mean, is the machine actually superior? Yes, that's the point. Like it. You could say, "Oh well, that that like, yeah, it gives away the game, I guess, a little bit to ask the question." But the the whole idea is that because I would I would proffer this would be my my ultimate take on it is that uh, the machine retards the development of man, and like, yeah, is the machine superior, or is a man using a machine superior to the retarded man? Yes, of course. But is the man using a machine superior to the well-bred? man who is able to tap into you know latent psychic potentials and have prescience uh no it's not it's a machine it does yeah. only what it's told
1: yeah i mean that gets into like philosophical whatever like some of which has some so one of the reasons stylistically why a lot of people like this like people talk about you know cultivating the lore and the uh you know the the backstory and like these flashes of color uh, there's sort of these constructs uh, within the book where it's just it's just drenching with that. It's probably the most uh, tidbit oversaturated novel I can think of. Like the conceit of the book is that every uh, chapter opens up this little uh, quotation dealio, um, usually Typically from Princess Hurolan. I, I, usually, I think there are a few that aren't, but okay. they, you know, they refer to like, you know, not not in a grotesque way, um, but uh, you know, as as we know from the Orange Catholic Bible, like like machines, bad news. Tried it once, didn't work out.
4: Or consulting like, Zen Sufi wisdom.
1: Yes, Zen. Yes, the Zen Sufis. What is is the the uh, a Sunni something?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it might as well be the Sunni Shia. Like, I, I don't remember what it was, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I
1: well. like just just Herber throw it, it just though. throw it all yeah. in there. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah, People are like, like, oh, that's cool. And then, like, of course, uh, I mean, I know he doesn't exist and he can't hurt us, but I'm sure that at some point, Brian Herbert is just going to be like, well, let's actually write the Orange Catholic Bible. That will sell a few copies.
4: Yeah, it's a problem with any kind of lore. It eventually leads to nerd shit where yeah. people. Yeah, I mean you can let it. Like, you oh, can okay, let it be like,
1: oh yeah, that's that's like cool little tidbit flavors. Like you don't need an entire. No, oh yeah, who who was be. that one guy in frame nature. for twenty seconds during this yeah. one movie? Like, why doesn't he have a spinoff? Like, no, we don't need like adventures of fucking like leot kinds and his monograph on like dune ecology or whatever yeah um, actually i have a theory
2: about some of the the uh, philosophizing and um vagueness around machines because the book was written in 1965 right i was really i'm sorry
4: it was released it was, written, in it was is that right
2: well, it was released in 1965. It was written, I think. He wrote it a few years before. But So in 1964 and in 1963, uh, IBM was the dominant player in the computer market, at least in the United States, somewhat globally. You had other ones like Electric Data Corporation. You had the CDC. You had a few other like competitors. But it was really IBM. And IBM had these pavilions they would do and these sort of physical spectacles they would do where they would introduce a machine to the public. And if I remember correctly, uh, one of them they had um, – I I think it was like the IBM 1400 or something like that. And it was basically the first machine or one of the first machines they could recognize – or do uh, do handwriting recognition, and it could do sort of um, online information right, for the, travel. for, for the postal stuff. service, that was a big deal. Yeah, yeah and like they, online they, information they travel, and it was sort of this. It was mostly hardware focused. You have to remember that the, there were not a lot of monitors and stuff at this time, and the way in which you interacted with machines, and you know, in the early '60s, around the time Herbert was probably writing this, um, was this sort of cryptic. Uh, sort of uh, arcane profession. You had engineers that kind of knew how to write something close to what we think of as software today. You had a lot of sort of very, very highly specialized, highly credentialed electrical and mechanical engineers who were putting most of this together. And you didn't have any real standard way of doing it. You had all these kind of various corporations and agencies that had their own particular arcane way of doing it. And so the average person that was not in the know about what exactly is going on now, it's very easy to just look up footage of someone building a computer at the time it was very mysterious and you did have these, this sort of role of certain people within the guild are the only ones who can really understand the computational technology because when it was written or when the book was written, that was the reality of the world.
1: There's a slight counterpoint to that, uh, in that, uh, roughly contemporaneously with Dune being published, uh, the writing of the two i'm not sure which one was like physically written down but they were released almost at the same time uh he actually wrote a book a uh, destination void which is kind of this nice little uh, uh almost like a bottle episode uh about well we we need to develop an ai Uh, so uh, the best way to do that is to make sure that it's really, really fucking far away from us uh, in case something bad happens. And we're going to lock all of these clones on a spaceship with these carefully bred personalities so that hopefully they go crazy enough to program the AI correctly. Uh, and then it works and it turns out that the AI is God. Uh, but that's, that's a whole nother story. Uh, but there's sort of a depiction of, like, computing technology, like, in a fairly, you know, it's still, like, the mainframe or whatever. Like that's kind of the big, the stereotypical, like, oh, it's the giant, like, ship metal core uh, or something. To yeah, HAL 2001. Yeah. I mean, it's it's that sort of thing. Um, but he talks about like, oh, the, the ship's neural networks need to be recalibrated. Some of it is like kind of techno gobbledygook, but yeah. there's kind of this anticipation that like, OK, well, we're going to have these machines like they're going to be uh, things that people can interact with. They're going to be commonplace. There's not really like, you know, the, the idea of personal computing or whatever is kind of way off in the radar. But I think he was kind of familiar enough with the concept and how it was being developed and the way that it would kind of plausibly proceed in the near future that it was like, it was something that he seemed to be interested in, at least in kind of like a, not so much a a mechanical, like how does this work and like what are going to be the effects of this specific technology, but in a like, Whoa, AI man, what if it, what if it goes foom, What if the AI God starts torturing you?
2: Okay, so part of, I mean, it was just a, it's just a theory. But part of what I will add to that theory, and I'm not necessarily disputing what you're saying, is that in 63, 62 and 63, you started seeing the first um, sort of mechanical arms or sort of extended mechanical robots for industrial purposes, and they had it sensibly a you know quote unquote computer control and it was in reality it was not anything close to what we think of today for computer control but i do think that he probably was seeing the rise of that when he was finishing dune or you know really getting into the thick of it and, and laying out the the main sort of techno elements of it i don't know it's it's just a theory about what may have well i think influenced that's influenced him to kind but, of but i would to... say
3: robotics has been somewhat popular in the popular knowledge ever since world war 2 i mean i think there was a a guy who created something for the army that was like kind of this walking automaton that and they had things um yeah, back like General Electric was trying to sell you these home appliances, like the Jetsons <laughs> stuff back in the '50s. It, it was pretty awful, but it, it
2: the ideas well, if you were back there. Watch those I... ads from the '50s, like the General Electric ones. There is a there's a funny bit where the 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 electronics literally come to life, and of course it's they don't actually do that, but there's an element where you like an engineer added some like little thing to it, or it's all just fake or whatever but they literally come to life and would like talk to you and would like message things to you. The irony of course is that now we actually have that, you know, you have finally the microwave that's connected to the open internet or the laundry machine that's connected to the open internet, that kind of stuff is like finally here.
4: Yeah. My, my takes a little different because I, I mean, it should probably be obvious and the odd man out on here is I, I, none of this, I think Herbert's probably more on my frequency when it comes to this. I, I'm a, the most luddite-minded here, and I think the attitude was simply that if, when all is said and done, in the final equation, uh, these technology machines, like they can have very disastrous consequences. They're, there's very real, very real consequences that can come from them and their misuse, and particularly subordination to them. But at the end of the day, what matters most and what really determines the course of, of human events is blood, myth, and the and power, the control of resources. I mean, those are the the three main things, and their interrelation is the heart of the story. And you know, he can. It may be that he he was afraid of the machine or thought that the mach, You know, that this was a big problem, but. at I think he just removed it from the story so that he could focus on I think the things that are more fundamental. Um, that's how at least how I look at it.
2: Do you guys agree with the take that the the entire story or part of the story of the first novel is effectively some kind of commentary on the East India Company and the American Revolution like that there's no, there's an, no you don't agree with that.
4: No, because there's just so many parallels. I think that, like, I mean, you can look to Afghanistan. Uh, the, I, I think that uh, specifically British imperialism definitely had a...
2: Well, that's that's what I'm talking about. Different. Like, the, the Guild and CHOAM and all these uh, other definitely organizations. Definitely not the American Revolution. I mean, you, could, uh, you well, could look
1: at, like, the Middle Eastern revolutions that were occurring roughly on that time frame as well. Uh, uh, like, I mean, Persia particularly... Um, with the uh the 58 uh coup i think that's i don't know like well that's I think one comes of the,
4: into the mix opium yeah. yeah i mean i mean one of the great
1: it, things is that like you know it it it's kind of it speaks to enough human constants that like you start seeing these patterns arise mm-hmm. in everywhere like
4: yeah and just just look at his use of um religion and myth I mean hit the way his style works, he takes all these different like it's, it's perennialist through and through I mean uh, in constructing the the sort of religious and mystical attitudes he takes everything from Buddhism to Islam to uh, you know I guess parts of Gnosticism and I mean just go through the list it's it's all things and it's similarly true with historical influences but I think if you were to look at what has the strongest parallel. Um, I, again, I would, I would look to Afghanistan and the Hindu Kush in particular, because it's just a, a place that's bred uh, people who are very far removed from the affairs of the world yet, and, and they're, they're very capable fighters. And somehow the world around them, the great game, um, speak of Kipling again, the great game comes to them and they find themselves, uh, despite not being involved, in any way, with uh, the affairs of the imperial powers, really. I mean, they're just living their lives far removed from man. Uh, they find themselves at the center of something. And do,
2: you, the... do you say that, or would you say, and I'll ask this all of you guys that there's there's an element of um, corporate power. It's not a, like it's not necessarily aligned with you. Um, that is indirect. Sort of uh, conflict with the the ideas and and the mission to achieve um, sort of results for your bloodline or your house. And so the again, the guild and Choam and this sort of stuff, like it's in it's sort of almost an element of private corporate power that prevents um, a certain rise and easier transition for one house or a multitude of houses to. Just sort of achieve a certain end without having to pay all this money, they can you know quickly accelerate their plans. Yeah, and they can sort of take over.
1: That that's like almost explicit. Uh, kind of in the in the lead up, like it's it's talked about how like well, in order to get any invasion going, you've got to pay like some obscene amount of money uh, to the uh, the navigators. Uh, mm-hmm and like thus most because they hold a monopoly on
4: space travel yeah most wars like
1: are just not worth it they don't get off the ground and of course like wars can be promoted or discouraged for political purposes or to advance that money power and they are you know reliant upon for navigation they need access to the spice which is controlled by some fiefdom that's granted uh, by the, uh, the emperor to make sure that the spice must flow, because it's this important industrial and medical and recreational, et cetera. You know, MacGuffin, sure, but commodity. So was the emperor? Maybe I mean, could you argue that part
2: of what part of going back to maybe the the medieval inspiration or the sort of the the empirical inspiration for this? The emperor sort of empowering a specific private body to prevent any one house from gaining that monopoly themselves. Yes,
4: that's, 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 the, that's the drama. Yeah, yeah. I would add though too. Um, I, that's another eugenic element is that it, and that's the explanation and given in the context of the story as to limited warfare, which is how you can have this uh, medieval, this feudal aristocratic house setup where you have like high-blooded people who are are conducting war Uh, you don't presumably you no longer have total wars of annihilation of course that changes with the uh (laughs) with the galactic jihad it's unleashed but that's the you know the whole idea that you have these noble houses that are themselves conducting warfare in a limited capacity i mean it's by
1: subterfuge that's how yeah. most of the deaths happen until you get kind of the off screen depiction of like, oh yeah, and then trillions of people died,
4: right, right, yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. but <laughs>
1: up until then, it's like <laughs> you know poison hidden in a uh, a hollow tooth, yeah, like assassins yeah, 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 right, right. directing drones from outside, like a yeah. assassin with a knife, lots of assassins, right,
4: uh, what's it, treachery within treachery within treachery I think <clears> is the line.
1: But the yeah. the figure of like you know the the idea of this like balanced medieval society because you know medieval societies they weren't static, uh, but they did they were stable. You know, in there were of- there were plenty
2: of checks and balances. Like the, I think that the the biggest myth of medieval society that permeates to today is this notion of the, you know the um, the king. As this sort of permanent warlord figure who's just sort of crushing everyone all the time, when yeah, it, nah. you know, in it's reality, like, that right, first of all, right. that was like invented around the time of the Magna Carta to sort of undo the power, some of the powers that the king had by the nobles. But if you if you look anywhere else in Europe, outside of England at that time, the, this the warlord notion was just not reality on the ground at all. And you Not really did have a—you a, had a lot of stability. Like, people, you know, came in and out of prominence quite fairly often. But you did have probably, I'm going to say, in some aspects, more stability than you have today.
1: You had more structural stability. Right. There, well, I that's mean, why— pe- I... You know, like, <laughs> something like a—what, th- like a third of the kings of England died non That's what I was saying earlier,
2: like, the—and—
1: the, Part of that stability
2: came from the the preponderance of the time, which was you are more likely to die with these this level of power, and so thus you have to act a certain way, and you have to behave yourself a certain way. Right, That's so why partly the the conflict itself is resolved through marriage. Right, which was the ultimate. I mean, you so, good stories; it ends with a wedding. If you're looking at <laughs> then trillions of people you know, die. The, age-old yeah, right. the, uh... the
4: genocide begins.
2: <laughs> if you're looking at like the age-old um, medieval uh, conflicts between France and England which I think really do permeate to an extent in this um, marriage frequently was one of the ways by which the stability was then sort of reinstated you know for temporary periods of time and then you had like cross-pollination of land ownership but it was one of these ways in which you know, the, the elites of Europe understood – and I think you can see in other cultures, but especially the elites of Europe understood that, um, that that stability was probably better than total power. Because total power likely meant you would die quicker or you had a higher tail risk. And it also would result in something just sort of morally unconscionable, which is total war. Or some kind of genocide, uh, inevitably.
4: And it's it's all these things come together in, in Herbert. I I really think uh, best I can say of it, it's it's the ultimate modernist mythology. I mean, th- nothing else really compares. All the great other uh, myths written in the twentieth century, uh, like pure myths, uh, tended to be very backwards looking. Uh, this is the only one that's future looking and. All the other like sci-fi tended to be written. I mean, a lot of them have merit, but usually they were written by nerds um, <laughs> who were like preoccupied with machines and didn't know how to tell a compelling story. I mean, this has all of it. It's got you know Shakespearean elements. I just I, I think it's a beautiful book. And would you would a, you
2: guys say that Dune, maybe not the series, but maybe okay. So Dune, yeah, I'm only is here. more is more uh, uh, prophetic than, or not prophetic, but in, uh, It is prophetic. Meaning, well, yeah, prophetic, but meaningful than Asimov's trilogy.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm Asimov thinking. is pretty overrated. Yeah,
4: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Big agree. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, mean, normally, like, Asimov is enjoyable,
1: around. and some of the, the robotics uh, stuff uh, is yeah. like, it's interesting. I think his short stuff is so much better than well, his Her- novels.
4: Herbert's also not a Jew. so, so. That has to be said um yeah no i agree i mean and i say that as someone i've read the foundation trilogy
1: um i didn't Did you get to really, the weird yeah. like uh the you know i don't want to say that he was ripping off herbert but at one point he's like oh yeah and then the the galaxy's like green consciousness wakes up and decides yeah, yeah, we yeah. need yeah. full socialism
4: yeah 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 no nah, and well and I think Herbert definitely probably had his influence from like iRobot and stuff like the the machine writings of the time um, that that's again, that's what i I open I open talking about that, but it's kind of just what he threw in the dumpster. He was like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're skipping past that chapter in uh, the development of higher consciousness,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that if you're gonna talk about people kind of grappling, I don't know that they're really even comparable because they were just kind of trying to do different things, but I think that definitely he's in the same category as Philip K. Dick, uh, yeah, and vice versa. Yeah, because
4: yeah, absolutely. Because Phil, yeah, I, I agree completely. And Philip K. Dick's my probably my favorite science fiction writer. It's at least the one I've same. I've read I've read the most of uh, Philip K. Dick and Heinlein.
1: Um, Heinlein, I just can't I, get into anymore. Like it,
4: I I will recommend for people. I I really liked, I I can recommend at least two Heinlein novels. Uh, those would be. I, I mean, maybe the first is a little bit dated, but I, I really like Stranger in a Strange Land. And uh, Moon is a harsh mistress. I can't see Hank not liking. Yeah, hands, Moon but. is
1: a harsh mistress and Starship Troopers are worthwhile. It's just every time I read one of his books, I like try to remember of like, is this one of the 80% of his books where he has the author stand in banging his own daughter? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it gets I mean, really right, fucking there. weird once you it. oh, yeah, like this again.
4: But, uh, yeah, Philip K. Dick is, I, well, I'll also add to that. I always found their friendship to be very touching, considering uh, Philip K. Dick was kind of, uh, uh, I don't want to bring, like, left wing, right wing into it again. I never do, but he was a little bit, he was, uh, you know, kind of a man of the counterculture Um, Yeah,
1: countercultural definitely. I wouldn't really... uh, I don't think there are any left-wing themes in... uh,
4: No, there aren't, but um, Heinlein was, uh, you know, a very... He was all over the place. Well, Heinlein, just his lifestyle and stuff, uh, compared with Dick, uh, very different. But, uh, you know, he was a very clean-cut, almost like military kind of guy. But he was... uh, When Dick was in trouble... Highland uh, helped him out. He uh, gave him money and stuff. He was always an admirer of him, and I, you know, I always thought that was kind of touching
1: because I like both both men's works. Definitely but, don't uh, let him babysit though.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Honestly, yeah. wasn't wasn't yeah. Dick uh, just but, like out of his like, hallucinating for at least like, the last was, years was, of yeah, uh, life. totally, of
1: yeah. yeah, 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 uh, yeah. The whole like he, pink he, laser. What happened
4: was, yeah, the laser beam. But the, okay, the thing about that, I have to say,
2: uh, <laughs> the Dick Defender has logged on.
4: Everyone, uh, uh, we're well, all Dick Defenders here. Okay, so he. Okay, <laughs> this is the story. Like, and he wrote about this in uh, in Valis. And what happened was his uh, his young daughter was like really sick, and he had a um, schizophrenic episode, basically, in which uh, a laser beam from Beyond the Stars beamed uh, a piece of information to him. And apparently the piece of information was very specific and he consulted his daughter's uh, physician about this. And he said like, look, the, the entities from beyond time or whatever, like told me about this, maybe you should look into it. And uh, it turned out like, yeah, they looked into it and uh, saved his daughter's life. Like, yeah. I don't know, just throwing that out there. Checks out. Look, I I'm just going to say about all this stuff. Like I uh, I'm going to go on record. Uh, I do believe that, I don't dismiss out of hand, like, psychic phenomenon. Uh, I, I, Who does anymore? Yeah. I I don't want to go, like, too far down the rabbit hole there, but I do think that, uh, to Hank's point as far as the relationship between uh, PKD's work and this, it's that uh, as a science fiction writer, uh, science fiction being a— we, we had a whole episode about this. We talked about this uh, a long time ago and speculative fiction was the we agreed was probably the better description of this category in general because science tends to denote like nerd shit and people who are preoccupied with machines and don't really understand people at well, all especially
2: because science yeah. fiction now has been sort of polluted with really really bad space opera and has yeah. lost a lot right. of its real edge and its real capability to i think pull from history and describe a a interesting future
4: yeah, and I actually talked about this when we were whatever it was we were talking about that led to this episode. When people said that they wanted us to talk about Dune, and here here we are talking about Dune. Uh, I think what's most compelling about this stuff is that you just you you remove yourself, and Herbert did it brilliantly. You you take the themes that are still relevant to us, but you remove them from a specific historical context that allows you to you know play around with them uh, differently and kind of. It, I don't know, it, you can look at it from different angles and uh, not be wedded to a certain time and place. And with Phil K. Dick, it was similar to where it wasn't about the machines. It was about, usually, the potentialities of the mind. And uh, it's no coincidence, by the way, that Herbert himself was influenced by, you know, and no kids, I don't think necessarily you should do psychedelic drugs, uh, but <laughs> Uh, Herbert Herbert was uh, eating mushrooms in the uh, dunes in Oregon. And that
3: was... Uh, well, I, I wanted to ask more about Herbert the man and what we might glean from that in order to understand maybe what he was trying to say but didn't explicitly say it in his novels. What, where is he from? What's his background? Why did he choose? Uh, I, like,
4: I don't actually know too much about frank herbert outside because dune's the only book of his i ever his, read his I kn- I biography know his...
1: by his son is actually it's it's good it's not bad well, one thing i do know is
4: that i was like trying to decide if i wanted to play the iron maiden song uh
1: at the outcharge of this supposedly he hated uh he hate- that's, metal. that's what i
4: was getting to yeah he absolutely so like uh iron maiden went to him and they were like hey bro like we really like dune can we like use it to nah you know it's song and he was like nah fuck that kind of music i don't like that shit and so they called it uh, the song is ends up being it's called like to tame a land it's an okay song i'm not a big i like metal i'm not a big iron Maiden fan though um but i was like nah like herbert didn't like it so we can't really use that as a true but i to answer your question no i don't really know too much about herbert i know a little bit about sort of what he was up to around the time he was writing dune but beyond that no, i don't
1: know i mean much he was uh i only vaguely remember some of this stuff but uh mostly by way of the references that made it into um, the book it's been god only knows how many years since i actually read the uh biography but uh he did a lot of interesting stuff he was like bumming around the pacific northwest um i think he was like a fire lookout or something uh doing like journalism on the side uh, was writing about like ecological projects to try to plant grass to uh, retard the spread of the uh, the East Oregon sand dunes. Apparently, there's Oregon. also like a, a species <laughs> of like really long worm that's like endemic uh, to that uh, to that area. That's kind of uh, kind of metal, you know. We haven't
4: really talked about the worms, actually. We managed to get through this whole thing. We yeah, didn't really you know talk the worms,
1: worms. I I really like. Okay, so I don't know. I, I find the worms almost the least interesting. <laughs> like,
2: I think it's a measure of IQ to determine like what do people care about with Dune? Do you yeah, care I, about saw, with, I saw I like, saw that comic worms? too, Hans. It's the like <laughs> I, I, eight,
1: yeah. eighty-five to one hundred IQ. Like wow, giant worms. Hundred IQ, forty <laughs> IQ and up. Wow, giant worms. Yeah, in the middle. Well. The mid-wit, the midwit curse, deep ecology, <laughs> colonialism, deep ecology. resources. Yeah.
4: Well, hey, that's actually what I wanted to talk about. Uh, I wanted to do real midwit hours here for a second. Um, regarding <laughs> re- regarding ecology, like that uh, is the, so deep ecology, right? I mean, the whole, what works really well throughout all of this stuff is just the interplay of these themes in a way that is holistic. It, it's it's an ecological take on space. You know, space geopolitics and jihad i mean like that's the thing like when i look at the world i think about it you, you think about it like every now and then you need to wage a uh, you know when jihad every now and then right we you do gotta... a little
1: we do a little jihad we call it we, we do get, a little jihad yeah.
4: Yeah, still you'll do a little jihad I mean it's just like everything in its right place there's a time for this there's a time for that there's a time for genocide. and it's
1: not a it's not like a culturally specific thing certainly we would never adhere to a specific forbidden <laughs> ideology or any yeah, group yeah, yeah, that promoted yeah. that but a wild and out I feel like yeah. uh actually I swear like isn't the the like the wilding uh isn't that like the I guess nobody but me has read the last couple. I think that's when like the whole like dispersal of uh, humanity after the, uh, after the whole God Emperor thing. But anyway, like, you know, you, you have like the Arab conquests, you have like completely different patterns of like uh, sweeping, con- like Charlemagne, you've got uh, Hernan Cortez, like you can look at all of these as similar, uh, similar patterns. None of them had giant worms though. What were we getting at with the giant worms?
4: Oh, just we would be remiss to have not mentioned the worms. Oh yeah, the, giant, the deep ecology, deep ecology. Yeah, there's there's worms in it. Yeah, deep ecology.
1: Well, okay, so the uh, the yeah, notion uh, the notion of like terraforming a planet. So it's kind of revealed by the end of the book that these like the Fremen Again, like, the whole thing about, like, shitty tribes pushed into marginal areas would really prefer that, like, this barren uh, hillside be good for anything other than moving goats over it. So they've been secretly hoarding water in these gigantic underground cisterns for God knows how long uh, in the hopes that a messiah would show up and would be able to use this water to terraform the planet. So that happens and then by the time you get like six uh books deep or whatever uh dune has been uh transformed into this like savannah planet with this tiny teeny little reservation of sandworms uh who are deeply allergic to water and die if they get wet and weird chemistry sex magic stuff etc happens if you get them wet just like gremlins uh
4: well, it's not altogether too different than the mass extinction of all major land predators across the world.
1: yeah I mean, I mean but they're they're confined to this this reservation that their only uh, sort of uh, purpose for existing at that point is to pump out the trickle of spice that keeps uh, civilization from essentially falling apart. They're no longer the dominant species on the planet. So it's an interesting. Uh, I don't know you could take that as a allusion to other kind of wild animals that got domesticated and then de-domesticated like you know the the gray wolf out west uh, or like the American bison
4: or uh, like man himself the white man in particular
1: hmm, it's very deep I mean if you want to talk about perils like the Bantu expansion uh... The, the there's a good jihad.
2: recent example of that, and the you know, in Europe and in in the in Russia too. There's now an increasing movement to bring back a few animals, one of which is the auroch, and that is the ancient bovine ancestor of the modern day cow. And I believe that they've successfully brought some back. There was an Englishman who had a farm and he and could. Brought back some variant or variant of half auroch. he actually had to uh, to kill the animals because they were attempting to kill him. Aurochs were very aggressive; um, they were very large, and there's there's an interesting irony in that. Uh, I think as we you know the, the Europeans sort of start to die out they are interested in sort of reviving the deep ecology that used to exist there. But that deep ecology died for a very specific reason mm-hmm. or was tamed into a lesser existence uh, because the animals were just too dangerous. And so I don't know what the ultimate plan with the resurrection of the orak, or the, the weird plan that is now gaining a lot of steam to uh, recreate the, the woolly mammoth. I don't know if they're going to exist on some kind of tiny reservoir of land or, 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 Or or what. Yeah.
1: I mean, also a favorite farm.
2: What's interesting too about Herbert, I will say, uh, in terms of deep ecologies of people, he is, you know, he's, he is a descendant of the Anglo, you know, conquest of the Pacific Northwest uh, one of the most Anglo parts of the country today, probably more Anglo than New England. And he is, you know, himself, this this descendant of the the great migrations and the conquering, or jihad, if you want to call it that, of that region, and by these settler types. And uh, he's sort of in this uh, sort of post-elite phase where he's just sort of wandering around, doing his own thing, uh, serving in the military, then getting out and just sort of reading and traveling and there's an element you mentioned earlier where he's trying to construct in his mind ways to deal with the deep ecology of the encroaching sand dunes in oregon the
4: desert encroaches
2: yeah it's similar to what goes on in dune because you have someone who's descended from this you know high house of people uh, that is uh, sort of tasked with, or thinks he's tasked with this ta- this process of figuring out how to shape and mold, uh, phenom you know natural phenomena and processes that are so super super old, and if you know almost taking it upon himself like it's my duty to figure out how to well, do this.
4: Well, Paul has to uh, to that point. Uh, Paul has to renounce his relation his his immediate blood ties to his immediate obligations in many sense to family and whatnot in order to become what he is it's a big theme become who you are i want to close actually if we don't have anything further i i would be uh it was someone who wanted to say something i heard uh
1: no I, i was just making quips
4: No, no, no. I heard a... I thought it was Adam. Okay, it's fine. Uh, Just one of my favorite quotes is, like, if you doubt some of the, for want of a better term, the reactionary elements of it, I thought this was a really good one. It's, uh, the concept of progress acts as a protective mechanism to shield us from the terrors of the future.
0: Dwarfs and see the giants, which one would you choose to be? And if you can't get that together, here's the answer, here's the key. You can freeze like a 30-century man, like a 30-century man. I'll save my breath Take it with me Until a hundred years or so Shame you won't be there to see me Shaking hands with Charles de Gaulle Play it cool And saran wrap all you can Be a 30-century man You can freeze like a 30 century man remain, like a 30 century you remain.